At CD Media, we are literally the tip of the spear. From Ukraine to the vaccine to Brazil, we've been at the tip of the spear on all these stories early. So if you want to know what's going on in the world early, before the rest of the news catches up, watch CD Media. But you know what? We have to make money. So we do have ads on the sites. But I know people don't like pop-up ads. They don't like ads. It's a problem. I mean, you get them on your phone, et cetera. If you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no ad subscription, which is a few bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites, not just CD Media, but the Manhattan, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, Armed Forces Press, Tsarism overseas in Eastern Europe, and CDM Espanol if you speak Spanish. So all of these sites are available with no ads. So sign up for our no ad subscription. You can find it on the websites. There's a pop-up and also in the top menu. And, and pay us a few bucks a month. Support free media. Support your children's future. Support the fight against the corrupt media narrative. Thank you very much. And now let's get to our guest. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and uh, I'm the host of Global Conversations in Plain Sight. And today we have two of our favorite guests with us, uh, Dr. Meryl Nass, Dr. David Bell. Welcome to the show. How are you guys? Happy holidays. Same I appreciate, appreciate that yeah. you're here. You know, we're going to cover a lot today about, um, you know, where we've been looking back in 2022 in terms of COVID, where we're going forward in the future in 2023. But I just want to start the show because just a little while ago, Bobby Kennedy put out on Telegram a tweet. Uh, he forwarded and it said, so th this is from somebody that was on Twitter. So the FDA, the FDA finally came out and said that the Pfizer COVID shot causes blood clots question mark, only two years late, which we all know that, that that is true. And then Elon Musk tweeted out, much will come to light as Fauci loses power. Fauci purchased among virologists globally with annual payoffs of $42 billion. With the paymaster gone, the orthodoxies will unravel. So that maybe sets the tone. But the truth of the matter is, it's not going it, to the war of the war against this COVID policy is not going to be over, which we all know. So, David, you brought uh, to my attention uh, this morning the um, UK Conservative Member of Parliament, Andrew Bregan, <clears throat> giving a speech uh, in Parliament, and I was, it was really something. It was it was extraordinary to see, and it was also it was. I guess in a lot of ways, it's it's probably the next, it's the beginning of the opening of the gate for people to get up and say, take this stuff off the shelves. And what he was focus, focusing on was Pfizer. He wants Pfizer to be taken off the shelves the same way that they took off AstraZeneca in the UK. Let's talk about that, David. Yeah, um, it was interesting that he, he spoke to an almost empty house, which was unfortunate. But I mean, there are other MPs in the British Parliament I know who agree with his sentiments or are close to it. So, um, yeah, I think it was really significant. We've seen this sort of thing in the EU Parliament a little bit where people talk, but I don't think many people take notice of what happens there. Having it in a national parliament, the British Parliament, I think is significant. And he, he just stood there for you know, 15 minutes and told, he just gave out facts. I mean, it's not really disputable what he said. Um, and his interpretation, which is perfectly reasonable and would have been standard 2019, was these um, injections should not be used for the vast majority of the population, perhaps for all. We don't have compelling evidence on anyone. Um, we have evidence on a period of reduction in severity of COVID. We don't have evidence that overall people live longer, they die less, or you know, the, the evidence from the Pfizer trials, which I think he quoted, was that 
there's a trend to higher mortality in the vaccinated group and there's a much higher rate of severe adverse events in the vaccinated group compared to severe COVID. So, you know, logic, he was just speaking logic. And yeah, it is significant to think that finally we are seeing this coming into the public domain. It'll be interesting to see how much the media picks up on it. And just in response, when you bring up the the EU, um, there is an, there is a corruption investigation, you know, that has opened up in the EU right now. We don't have all the details out. We don't know whether it's going to go to the woman who runs it, whose name I forget, um, Van Van Lundel. Van der Leyen. Van der Leyen. Yeah, who, who it appears, um, you know, is reported to have. Uh, managed a 30 plus billion euro contract with Pfizer through text messaging um, through the CEO of Pfizer mm -hmm. um, when her family has direct vested interests in um, uh, you know, a company that has a partnership with Pfizer. So it, yeah, it, I mean, they are going after someone small. It'll be, uh, hopefully that is not to try to take blame away from where perhaps it should be. But it is staggering that at least there is not an investigation going right. on. Yeah. But you never know. It takes a little bit long and it might take it for, you know, once the domino starts, we saw it with the Catholic Church when you've got a, you know, a scandal mm. as big as this. It's one and then it will roll out country to country. Merle, what were your thoughts when you when you heard Reagan speak? Well, I thought, you know, thank goodness, two years late, um, you know, <laughs> dollar late. Um, this stuff is so obvious, um, but thank God it's getting into Parliament. Is it getting into the media? You know, was your uh, 15, 20 minute speech actually reported anywhere? And it seems like all of us, you know, know what's going on. We've known what's going on since almost the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but what's it going to take to get it into the mass media and let everybody else find out? You know, where the U.S. government is still spending $475 million to try to convince elderly and poor and uneducated people uneducated about the vaccine to take the booster, the new COVID bivalent booster, when um, we know it doesn't work. It's been proven in published studies over and over that it doesn't provide neutralizing antibodies against the strains that are out there now. So you can't get any better evidence than that. Um, and yet the CDC is still claiming, oh yeah, it's, it works, it works. Um, and people are still getting the shots. So uh, unfortunately, you know, we're still in the middle of this two year long conundrum. Well, it is, and, and and it's it's frightening because over Thanksgiving, when you know most people were thinking the holidays and spending time with their family and friends, President Biden comes out and says we're going to spend four hundred and twenty-five million dollars over the course of the next six weeks across America to you know push the shots, and they're focusing on minority groups and they're focusing on on. I mean, you know, it, this is pure insanity at this point in time because. They haven't officially announced at the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the NIAID, all who have been informed since 2021 and in uh, 20, late 2020, that these shots, in fact, have vascular and neurological adverse effects. And they have, they're fully informed, not just from the facts injured, but because they, in fact, asked the vaccine to send some of their blood to the NIH. I mean, you know, there's, there, there is a willful ignorance. There's a cover up here. And at the same time, they're not coming out and saying that. And they have Fauci exiting. And then he goes on legacy media, all the other networks for his goodbye show. And we can't get him off the stage. I mean, and he's now he's saying he's going to teach. I hope he doesn't teach ethics. And I sure as hell hope he doesn't teach at my alma mater at Georgetown, where his wife is a fellow. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if we're ever going to get rid of this guy. But having said that, let's talk about we have we had Biden saying on 60 Minutes a month and a half ago that, you know, the pandemic's over almost seeming like you know, to slow everybody down to think that oh we're, we're turning we're turning that tide and then at the same time we have um what's going on on the world stage let's talk about this because 
the three of us know, and people who are following this story know, that no matter what is said in the United States, in fact, the, the, on the world stage, the WHO and at Davos, there is a great push to bring forth a pandemic preparedness treaty, accord, whatever you want to say. Merle, you want to take this? Because you, you've written about this in the past. Three of us have talked about this on this show before. Why don't you start, Merle? Um, so many U.S. and international organizations, including the World Bank, the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, the Democratic members of the um, House of Representatives, uh, as the UN and the WHO are all trying to um, move the world um, into a situation where the nations of the world have signed on or there has been a majority vote to either a treaty or to health regulation amendments that grant the WHO and international organizations massive powers that they've never had before to demand surveillance of misinformation and control of misinformation um, to collect $50 billion a year to pay for their new pandemic preparedness infrastructure, to remove human rights and freedoms from the existing document, take that away and create all these new restrictions such that the WHO can decide what drugs and vaccines you use in a pandemic, can impose quarantines, and this is this is a real kicker, can tell nations they're not allowed to use other drugs or vaccines or measures. So for example, in the United States, if we want if you wanted to use vitamin D or ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for your COVID and the WHO says no, these amendments will give it the right to impose that no on the US government and make them take away. Of course, they don't need it. They've already done that, but in a future pandemic. So, um, and, and this whole method of gaining control over nations is being ushered in under the, the rubric, the guise of pandemic preparedness, when in fact, that is a, a, that is a defunct concept that it has no meaning. It has never been shown to work and monies that have been put into uh, pandemic preparedness in the past in the United States have led to the development of, of organisms, virulent organisms like SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the two most recent pandemics that were declared by the WHO Director General, one for COVID and the other for monkeypox, are both due to organisms, to viruses that are lab created, that everybody knows at this point were lab created. So that's where the money's gone. It hasn't helped us. It's actually created the pandemics. Um, so <laughs> that's where that's where I think we are. Okay, so let, let's unpack this because people people who are, have not paid attention, and, and I forgot at the opening of the show to thank the Conservative Daily for, for expanding our audience today. So my apologies to Joe and everybody that's over there, and thank you very much. Let's unpack this, guys, because it's important for people to understand, first of all, that the, the WHO, International Health Regulations, what year was that set up? Was that 2005 or 2015, David? 2005, and there was something in place before that, but they, they revamped it in 2005. All right, so Joe, Joe Biden comes in, and his uh, HHS, some woman named over there whose, whose name I forget, who set up amendments in January of 2022, and they were working on them in, in 2021, decided to send these amendments with the support of 47 countries across the world, including the US, but it's the Biden administration running it. These were amendments to the original 2015 agreement. 2005. Okay, 2005, sorry. Um, and we didn't find out about it until, I guess, at least I didn't find out about it until uh, April. Um, and so this is going to change it. And this is comes under the One World Health concept. David, do you want to explain to the audience what that is? Because it emanated from my understanding from the University of California at Davis. No, the, the idea is One Health is called. And 
so it's one of these terms that's been, I think, hijacked. I mean, One Health, the concept of One Health is just a sort of holistic view of health. Um, there are you know, pathogens, there is environment, there is psychological state, um, etc. And these all interact with each other. And if you look at the uh, health in this sort of holistic way, you're going to make more progress in, in improving it. So that, that's all fine and good and makes sense. And it was brought into, you know, particularly, say, in agriculture and livestock, there are diseases that pass between livestock and humans. They're not that common, but there's quite a few. And so if you manage the livestock, you can manage human disease. So that's all just common sense, yeah? Mm -hmm. the, the way it has been taken over is that it's been taken to construe, therefore, we should control all these different aspects of human, we being public health. We can come back to what's driven this attitude change, but there are people in public health who think that they should control health, not advise, but control, and control health policy. And they think that this should therefore extend to what we do with animals, how we eat, what we eat, what we grow, how we manage climate change, etc., and that they, in the, they see people not dying as the ultimate priority and therefore they should control everything else to do with human existence mm -hmm. because they're the ones who arbitrate um, what you do to stop dying. And so they have sort of, they see this as a, a way of playing on the sort of health, you know, everyone wants to be healthy idea to impose, I mean, a, a set of rules which everyone has to follow regarding every other aspect of their lives. And if you look at the people running it, um, it's a set of rules which will benefit them, particularly which we've seen through COVID. So Merle, so that means with these amendments that the Biden administration is ba was basically saying, we will give our health sovereignty, as did the other 46 countries who came into this, uh, and we will give our health sovereignty underneath the tutelage of the WHO Secretary General, uh, whoever that is on a daily basis down the line, as well as the six regional directors there, which means that if they set policy, as I understand it, at health, it would affect somebody like you, who is a physician who has patients. So how does that make you feel? And what does that do to the patient if you have somebody in Geneva making these decisions because according to what these amendments are that biden's pushing out there they basically are going to follow whatever rules these people determined to be at the time well what you're basically doing is operationalizing and legalizing what has taken place in the united states and many other countries illegally during the COVID pandemic which is the propaganda and censorship of information. That's part of this, these amendments, the censorship. Um, uh, you know, you, people will only be able to hear one version of what is good for you mm -hmm. and nations will be forced to do it. And that can go beyond medications. That could be quarantines, that could be vitamins, that could be diets, that could be exercise. I mean, we don't know what it could be. Anything that is deemed to give you um, more health protection the WHO can impose on you. Um, in addition, the, as I said, the, the WHO can also impose untested drugs and vaccines on you. So if you think that, you know, this, these rotten COVID vaccines are a one-off, they're not. We're you know, companies are developing many messenger RNA vaccines for all sorts of diseases to replace existing vaccines as well as create new ones. And these two could be imposed on all of us through the, these amendments. So um, there's a lot to be worried about. It is taking away auto autonomy for health from patients and from doctors at a minimum for a declared pandemic, but potentially for anything that might risk a future pandemic as well, because there was some language in the amendments suggesting they're going after potential future pandemics. And, and we have that kind of language in some of the US law regarding um, uh, pandemic responses. So it's something to be worried about.
So I have always said from the very beginning of this insanity that when people start talking about the future pandemics, if we don't find out the origin of this, and my concern is, is about the act of omission of world leaders coming together, who are heads of state, demanding to know what happened, because it's just, to me, it's logical. You would want to know what happened so that you could prevent it from, from happening again. David, why don't they have that conversation? When they're talking about having a treaty, why aren't heads of state now saying, what the hell happened? How did this start? Um, well, we actually saw very early on, we saw an Australia make an attempt at that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they got no support from other countries that I saw and, you know, the country that they were accusing, which was China, said they'd impose a whole lot of measures, which, you know, would wreck Australia's economy. Um, so that sort of tells you partly what's happening, that um, it is, you know, it is tricky to go up against very large, powerful countries. So if you're a head of state and you want to do that, you're risking... Um, your country and therefore your political survival in doing so. Um, but, at the, but at the same time, this is a global pandemic. I mean, you know, the... Well, it's a global outbreak. I mean, this is just wrong, but this is where we have to be careful as well. Um, COVID kills people at the age that they, at the average age that they die. You know, in Europe, it's over 80 years of age, the average death from COVID. Nearly all of these people are going to die anyway. Um, uh, we're all going to die. Sorry, they, they have severe comorbidity, right. and so they had a very limited life expectancy, unfortunately. And COVID tipped them over the edge. So, was, so explain explain what we saw early on. They were um, in the hospitals in the EU. The people who were older, people who were obese, yeah. people with diabetes, they had heart issues. Those are most of the people who actually died from COVID. Yeah, and that's not downplaying the impact on them, but that it, in terms of disease burden, what kills people, et cetera, and years of life loss, this was not a major impact on the human race. Well, what was the major human, the major impact was the response to it. So it comes down to what Merrill was saying, you can call anything a pandemic as long as a pathogen that crosses borders. That there, it doesn't have to devastate, um, you, you know, humans in terms of severity and so on. And the the pandemic before that, that they called a pandemic, was swine flu, which killed less than the flu normally kills. You go back, you know, in the hundred years before that, there, you know, after the Spanish flu, there's just two yeah. others which were just flu, severe flu. So. Pandemics are really rare. So the, the problem here is that also we're using something which is naturally a rare event and not a big impact on humans since the days of antibiotics 100 years ago. And we're using that to completely transform society. So we keep, you know, we've become obsessed with pandemics. We're forgetting that tuberculosis kills one and a half million people every year. Um, you know, since COVID started, tuberculosis has killed almost as many people, but it's killed much younger people. It's had a bigger impact on the human race than COVID in terms of the actual pathogen. So we have, we've become obsessed with what is a, a rare event that is not hugely impactful, and we've made it very impactful by our response. And then this is being used to um, put people in fear so that these other restrictions that Merrill was talking about can be imposed. But we, we all need to step back and think, what are we even dealing with in terms of pandemics and in terms of outbreaks? The outbreaks happen, they always have. For the last hundred years, they have not had a huge impact on human survival. But our, the, start, the response that we're starting to put in place is what is having an impact. So then we have to discuss what, what is the motivation behind the, 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 because they're making this worse and is it control? Is it depopulation? I mean, you know, is it quarantines that they want to set up? And for the audience and for, for those joining us who haven't heard this before, we know for a fact here in the United States that in New York, there's a regulation. It's a health quarantine regulation that was set up by Kathy Hochul, who's the governor of New York. And they tried to get it through the legislation. And, and it's been challenged in the courts. It, in fact... Um, 
the judge said, no, this is unconstitutional. This, there's no due process, but you know, this, this is no longer, you know, conspiracies. These are, we actually know that there is a movement on paper, policy, government officials, presentations, conversations out in the open, it's in plain sight, it's in the, you know, people are challenging it, but it almost seems as if the policymakers, whether it's a WHO or whether it's the governor of New York or whether it's somebody in the UK is basically saying, we're gonna move forward. And if there is going to be a court challenge, everybody's just going to have to wait to see what the courts say. It, it, I mean, it, no one's saying, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea, folks. Maybe we really don't want somebody in Geneva to be deciding whether or not your kid can be taken out of your home because the kid has been exposed to something and there's no due process. I mean, it, it, it's almost as if the, it, the everybody's lost their mind in this space. And David, you've worked with the Gates people. You've, you, know, you know these people at the WHO. Merle, you, you've been at conferences all over you know, the world. What, how do you explain this so that people understand that this is still in motion in terms of the control? What, what are you hearing, Merle, when you were recently in Europe? Are Europeans aware? No, no. Europeans are actually less aware of the problems with the vaccines and this um, WHO power grab than Americans, surprisingly. I don't know too many Americans that that, that, do, that understand this. You know, I think people that are in the space, you know, where they are aware, they want to be aware. But I think the average American has no idea. No, no. David, you, I mean, you're originally from Australia. When you talk to your family and friends down in Australia, do they understand? Because I know I've done interviews with some senators down there who, you know, are, are, are trying to get Pfizer off the shelf. Yeah, I think like everywhere, there's a small percentage of people that seem to see what's going on and are concerned. Most people, I think, don't see it. It seems, well, we've all been brought up, certainly in Western society, to trust authority. Mm. Uh, it's true. And, you know, the, when the, the COVID thing started, um, the people I knew, most of the people I knew who immediately saw something was wrong were from Eastern Europe or from Asian communist regimes. And they, they just recognized the pattern in the propaganda. So they, they started listening. What's going on here? We know this sort of messaging. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we are not used to that, especially in places like Australia, where, you know, there's never been a civil war, there's never been an invasion, etc. And people just have sort of trusted that, you know, the people at the top will do the right thing and everything will be fine. So I think people are having, they're struggling to get out of that attitude. And they had severe lockdowns in the provinces in Australia, which was draconian for yeah. most of the Australians. I mean, they were very severe. You couldn't go out of your house unless you're going to the pharmacy. Or it's incredible. I, I, I couldn't have envisioned that Australians would put up with that. I thought which... the Australians were going to be the first ones that would come out and say, no way, Jose. You know, and then it ended up being the Canadian convoy. Um, who kicked off, you know, the march that we were in in uh, Australia? They kicked off the the truckers across America, you know. But you know, you still had a million people show up before that, you know, or during during. I guess it was before that, you know, in Berlin when Bobby Kennedy spoke, you know, several months before that. But it, it's it, it it. What is it going to take? Um, going forward. The, the reason the truckers were the ones is because their new draconian rules were being imposed on them. And they realized the government did not have their best interests at heart. And it was going to, it was restricting their ability to cross borders during COVID. Um, in the United States, um, I and my friends find that basically everybody who had a job where they weren't really benefiting much from the economy and the government figured this out a long time ago. So if you were a farmer, if you were a tradesman, you know, if you had a family that was struck by um, drugs, drug abuse, mm -hmm. you understood that the government was not really your friend. But people in the academic world, people who managed to work off their laptops, they, 
you know, as far as they're concerned, the, the COVID has been a good thing. They didn't have to go to work. They got their paycheck, right? They didn't have to spend as much money um, or time traveling. And uh, they would love to continue living that way. Just, you know, pull out your laptop at home and get going for a few hours. So I think um, we're not going, you know, we had half the country that was already suspicious, that already knew that the laws were not being written for the people or for them anyway. Their, they, their economic situation was getting more tenuous. Um, and we have half the people for whom that was not the case. And I don't see that split changing um, until the government cracks down more. So here you have Belgium, uh, or Holland rather, where the government has said, okay, we have to get rid of up to 75 to 80% of certain emissions. Certain mm -hmm. greenhouse gases have to go and 3000 forms have to go. And first they said it was emissions. Then they said it was nitrogen runoff into the water. And now there's now people are saying, oh no, it's because they want to put factories and homes in the area where the farms were. And these are some of the most productive farms in the world. Right. So, um, so people in Holland are starting to wake up now that it's like, wait a minute, wh why do all these farms have to close down? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it's because we have this um, 2019 EU regulation that said blah, blah, blah. And now that the way you interpret it is that farms have to close down because that's the only way we're going to reduce our admission. And, you know, who's really measuring these admissions? Do they really know? that the pee and the poop and the farts from the cows are causing, you know, climate change? Has anyone proved that? I don't think they have. It's well, a you know, story. But you, ha you have all these, I mean, I would tend, I mean, it's good that they are responding in Holland, all right? But the rest of the world doesn't know what's happening in Holland. I mean, when, when the Canadian convoy happened, and then the, the, this crazy woman, Freeland, who's the, who's the number two in Canada, and Trudeau went ahead with it, and we had cameras on the ground, and they're saying that there's violence in, in Ottawa when in fact there wasn't, and then they, they froze the bank accounts. My head snapped because I thought, whoa, this is the stuff they do in third world countries where I've been. So I could not believe it. And I couldn't believe that the legacy media did not have the same reaction I did. And they went along with the fake news coming out of Canada through the Canadian broadcasting saying that there was violence down, downtown in Ottawa. There was violence with the cops downtown after, after they froze the bank accounts, but not doing it and, and not during it, which they concocted and said was the reason that they froze the bank account. And, you know, it took five days for the banks to basically go back to Trudeau's administration and saying, we're going to collapse because because everybody that was over that overpass, everybody that was by that highway, as the convoy went into Ottawa, was afraid that they were going to be caught up in this too, and not just the people that were in Ottawa. So I don't understand what it's going to take for the world, the average person to wake up. And maybe it has to be something in their backyard, like what's happening in Holland. So, you know, it was even civilization's going to collapse if people do not get their heads out of cement. Yeah, <laughs> totally agree. But, you know, they also, you know, the police were um, slashing the tires mm -hmm. of the trucks and right. they contacted their insurance companies and had them cancel insurance so they wouldn't weren't able to drive the vehicles. I mean, this was as, you know, as draconian as anything I've ever seen. Um, Christia Freeland, of course, is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. As and is, for the as audience, that is the number two woman who came up with this because she's also the uh, the Minister of Finance in Canada. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. she's she's a, she is a graduate of the uh, World Economic Forum. So, David, how does that fit in now with the WHO and the World Economic Forum for all these amendments? I mean, you've you've been in the room with these people. You've seen them in motion. What 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 are they? What are those conversations like when they want to take over the world? So, people need to understand. So, the, the WHO is an organization of thousands of people, and it's you know ordinary people. But we've seen in the past what ordinary people can do, mm -hmm. um, and it cannot be very nice once group thinking gets in place the you know the, 
WHO is, you know, the, the, the very top is political. They're appointed through, you know, arguments between countries and diplomacy and social politics. And below that, then they appoint those below that. And you go down a long way before you get really technically, you know, people who got where they are on the basis of technical prowess. And even there, the lower rungs, it's, you know, a lot of people were there because of, you know, we needed uh, people, there wasn't enough people for a certain country, so you recruit some, a lot of some mm -hmm. are there because they're the nephew of the Ministry of Health of that country, etc. And some people go there with good intentions, they're there for 30 years. So that these are the, and you know, that they, they lose all their interests and they end up just being trapped because it's really good benefits, great salary, tax-free, uh, great education benefits for your kids, etc. and business class travel. So people don't want to leave. So these are the people that you know, Merrill is saying will be making rules. And the scariest bit to me is that, yeah, this IHR and the proposed treaty, they include management of information. So mm -hmm. these are the people who have no particular interest or connection with, with you, but will even be determining what you are allowed to say about health and not. Um, they're not experts by and large. They're just people who happen to have ended up in that job. So they're they're more like bureaucrats. They're going to follow. They're going to follow the lead of the leadership. Yes, yeah, so they'll follow. It's a very hierarchical organization. They'll follow what the people at the top tell them to. You, you can't really step out of the line in these organizations. So one of the one of the movements there, the the woman who was the uh, the science advisor director, I forget her name, but she's Indian, I believe. She's leaving, going back. And so they have they have uh, somebody that's coming in. Merle, you brought this to my attention the last 24 hours. Ferrara from the Welcome Trust. Let's explain to everybody, you guys, what, what the Welcome Trust is and then, you know, what this means in terms of having Ferrara over there. Because, again, it's, it's more of the entrenchment, I think, of the globalist control. The Welcome Trust is the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of the UK. It is their largest uh, medical research charity and it sits on about $40 billion um, and gives out over a billion a year. And for the last 10 years, Jeremy Farrar has been the, the manager, the top person in that organization. It's odd why he got the job because he had supposedly been doing vaccine and infectious disease research in Vietnam for a no large number of years before, through, the Ox through Oxford um, for, for many years before that. Um, and, but Jeremy Farrar is also the person who set up the phone call at which Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, the NIH director, um, worked with other virologists to talk about the origins of of the COVID back on February 1st of 2020 mm. and set up a, a cover-up article in Nature Medicine that was published a few weeks later um, that claimed there was no way possible this could have uh, come from a lab. And Jeremy Farrar's worked closely with Peter Daszak. He was a co-signer of the Daszak ghost-written um, correspondence in the Lancet, which also said, you know, this basically anyone who says this came from a lab is a conspiracy theorist. And, and that, that was, was that was the same month. That was February 2020. Yes. Yeah. Um, Farrar also sat at the top of the heap in terms of setting up the solidarity and recovery trials, which were clinical trials that overdosed uh, 2,600 people with hydroxychloroquine at a dose never before recommended for humans. And that was because that they didn't want it to succeed and be used as an alternative to handling people who had COVID at the time. Exactly. Well. So in both of those trials, more people died who were receiving hydroxychloroquine than were in the control group and who got nothing mm -hmm. uh, as a treatment for COVID, except what they call usual care, which is Tylenol, you know, and maybe IV fluids and such. Right. Um, so Farrar, uh, also the his boss, the, the head of his board of trustees until last year was uh, Dame uh, Manningham Bueller, who was the former head of MI5. And I believe that um, the only way to explain Farrar's career, Jeremy Farrar's career, 
is that he too is associated with, with British intelligence. Um, now he is moving to the WHO. He is taking a demotion to become the chief scientist at WHO, which is a position only relatively recently created. Mm -hmm. um, it's not clear what he's going to do there. Um, he's not really a scientist. He's been a money man and uh, sort of managing grants for medical research and, and products. Was he into um, bioweaponry? I can't prove that. No, I don't know. Um, have, you ever, have you ever run into him, David? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I have. So, you know, as Meryl said, he, he became Wellcome Trust's head from, you know, a relatively middle-ranking position um, in the organisation. You know, he was head of one of the units. Um, yeah, so... I mean, it's it's interesting that he's got this job. I would have thought if you had actually signed that letter, which denigrated people in February 2020, denigrating people for suggesting that it is not a natural origin at a time when we had no way of knowing with certainty where the virus had come from, that should really disqualify you, actually, because it shows that you're not seriously interested in science, you're not interested in putting the cards on the table and working out what's the highest probability of a certain, you know, event in this case, the origins of the, of the virus. So it, it's a demonstration. We've seen this, you know, the same with the way that people were denigrated that pushed um, the, you know, potential alternative treatments. And we know now, for instance, vitamin D3 um, supplements reduce mortality by about a third that was published in nature. But I mean, this is this stuff is obvious. So these people knew this all along because it's not a new idea that vitamin D improves T cell response to viruses. So the fact that this was suppressed and that these senior people went along and so with the suppression and even denigrated those who talked orthodox science and public health, surely mm -hmm. should disqualify them from these positions. If we're going to prepare for the next pandemic we need to improve we need to look at what went wrong with this one and who was involved uh, honestly and who was involved and look at it honestly and objectively and that can't in, you wouldn't then do that with people who were directly involved in what were clearly major mistakes early on do you, Merle, do you think that the, the reason why for is moving to the who may have something to do with Anthony Fauci and his next step, since he is so close to Anthony Fauci and Anthony Fauci has said in his exit, uh, you know, interviews that he's going to teach and lecture and inspire, you know, and still be in the game. I mean, you know, we need to get the hook for the man and take him off the stage. But, uh, you know, when, when you mentioned to, that Ferrar was going and we know the link between the cover up in early 2020 and the emails that we've, we've received from the, uh, you know, the FOIA cases and the exchanges between Francis and uh, Fauci and the conversations over time that resulted into that, you know, there's no lab leak article. You, you think it's possible that they're, they're just, they're reconfiguring to move forward with, with the agenda that they ultimately had wanted to complete? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly possible. I think Fauci was in close touch with um, Tedros, the director general of WHO. And um, why wouldn't he continue to stay in touch and maybe, you know, be his handler? But, um, you know, we don't know that. There is no role for Fauci at the WHO. There's no role that's high enough where he would get, you know, the accolades he, he's used to. So I, I would think it would be a ceremonial role or a behind the scenes role, if any. Um, or maybe it, they, create that, they, could Ferrar, create, they could Ferrar, create a new role. Well, maybe, mm -hmm. but they can't create anybody higher than Tedros. Um, no, but a liaison between you know the United States since Joe Biden's taken the lead. Yeah, absolutely, that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, I, I suspect Farrar, who my impression of him is that he's a people person, that he you know, gets people to do things, that he works well with people, and that he may be there to help usher. He is a, now one of the co-chairs of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, 
which is another one of these globalist organizations that's trying to get lots of money and push the identical plan for preparedness that the WHO is pushing. So I think he may be moved into the WHO so that he can um, use carrots and sticks with all the countries there to get them in line to vote. The, the amendments, these new amendments that have been proposed and could be negotiated and the language is likely to change, um, that only needs a 50% vote of the members of the World Health Organization, which is 194 countries. Mm -hmm. Each one has, you know, one person who will vote. So as long as they can get 98 votes out of that group, um, these amendments are going to be passed. And in, I believe, six months, uh, although that may be negotiable as well, they will become law in all the countries. So um, I think that may well be his job is to get those 98 countries in line. So, so if they, if they all agree at the WHO, because there's some, there's some talk about whether this is an accord, is it a treaty? Does it have to be ratified by the Senate here? Um, so, right, there's two documents, Christine. So okay. one of them started out as a treaty, then was called accord. Now it's called an instrument. That one needs a two-thirds vote, but the amendments to the two-thirds vote, two -thirds for, vote. For the treaty. There are two documents yeah, because it's a new treaty with this. The IFR is already in place, so it's just okay. So let's unpack that for the audience to know, because if I don't understand, I, I'm presuming our audience may not. So there's two treaties. What's on the table, and is it just going to be decided by these people with the WHO, or does it have to be ratified back here in the United States? So there are two documents that the WHO is using, and they have a lot of parallel items. And I suspect they, are, they have two documents instead of one, A, to confuse us, so it's hard for people to understand what's going on, and B, to see maybe they can push in one direction and one can get through or maybe the other. But the amendment, so an, a version of the amendments language was issued this past week. A version, it's not a final version, but it's something we can get our teeth into and point out what's in it. So for, for those amendments to pass, it's, a new, it's, a, it's an amending the last amendments which were issued in 2005 and agreed to then. You need a half of the countries of the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the WHO. So, no, so, so it doesn't it doesn't go back to the parliaments or to Congress to decide. It's just decided in Geneva. Uh, I think that will depend a bit on the country and the country's constitution. Yeah. Okay, what's the U.S. Yeah. Constitution say, Marla? Um, this is very confusing, also, because what happened apparently, and this was identified by um, Sylvia Behrens and Fran Boyle is that the state, U.S. State Department has claimed that the international health regulations um, have the power of a treaty, that they are U.S. law, even though they were never ratified by the Senate of the U.S. So the question, you know, the, so the U.S. government may be acting as if this is law and that would have to be challenged in the courts mm. to say, no, it isn't law. It never got ratified. And um, Francis Boyle has pointed out that Biden could sign it and until and it could be sort of basically have the force of law waiting for it to go through the Senate. And that could be, a you know, we can hold things up for decades before um, they're presented to the Senate for ratification. So some of some of our treaties have done that. You know, the 1925 Geneva Convention right. was not presented for ratification until about 50 years later. Hmm. So. Um, it's not clear how this is going to go, but if they can get their 50% vote, which it looks, you know, if you give people enough carrots and sticks, usually you can accomplish that. Um, if, the if the U.S. federal government goes along with that, there are ways they can make it seem that this is U.S. law until uh, a court says otherwise. Well, I would tend to think that since the Biden administration is taking the lead on pushing this internationally at the WHO, 
that they would have figured out the model. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had two parallel tracks to see which one can we get through. And they're probably sitting in the room designing however they're going to do it. Because if a somebody, if a non-globalist president gets elected in 2024, he may just decide to pull out of this and they want to set up some machination that they cannot do it because when Trump was president, he pulled out of the Paris Accord. And he was allowed to because it was an accord. And he pulled out of the WHO. That's true. And so it, so it may be that what they're trying to design is that once, if they're able to be successful in the next two years, if the Biden administration is able to be successful in the next two years, would turning over the health sovereignty under the WHO, and it passes at the WHO with the other countries, that Americans are stuck. So they're going yeah. to be. So the people in Geneva are going to be telling the people in Omaha, Nebraska, whether or not that they can eat meat, whether or not that you know something is broken out in Chicago and they have to stay in their homes, whether they live in New York and somebody walked by somebody who had I don't know Ebola or something and they can be in a health quarantine. What a what a nice what a, what a nice Christmas picture this is, isn't it? It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So, so the truth is, the message is everybody needs to be aware. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying, I don't think the WHO, as the WHO, wants to take over the world. Yeah, it's it's a bunch of ordinary people doing their stuff. The WHO is a tool. It's being used by other people who are doing Davos? it. So, is it Davos? Yeah, well, very much Davos, a world economic forum, and the, the, the sort of what is swirling around them. There's also, you know, some countries, large countries, international politics, but the, you know, the, the WHO responds to its funders. The people working there are funded. A lot of them are, you know, you can, they can trace directly where their funding is coming from and what the funding is for. If, if you don't do that, then you're, um, then you, you don't have a salary in a couple of years time. So, and so, it, so that it, 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 it's sort of been bought, I think, um, to a large extent. You know, public health was not supposed to be like this. And public health, you know, we've gone for a whole mindset from giving advice, getting information and putting it in front of people so that they can make good decisions mm-hmm. to we will tell people what to do and we will enforce it. And, yeah, it's a totally, it's turning Western traditions and human rights upside down, really. Um, it's more like a, a, a fascist approach to society. Well, than a, it, it than is. A constitutional it is. democracy, which most of us were used to and thought we had. So, you know, just fixing the problem of the WHO, if you, it's like, you know, this whack-a-mole stuff. It, you know, you hit the WHO, it's going to come up somewhere else. The World Bank is funding pandemic preparedness. The, Mm-hmm. Etc. The you know there are other we mentioned the Wellcome Trust and so on. There are a lot of institutions that are behind this, and behind them is perhaps the World Economic Forum and a lot of people making a huge amount of money through the whole vaccine agenda. You know, big pharma, etc. So this is the WHO is part of. Um, it's more than a symptom, but it's it's a tool that's being used to impose a different way of governing society. And they're doing that through public health. So we need to address these things, but we also need to look deeper at, you know, what has happened to the media? What has happened to the idea of truth and integrity in public life? It, it's a joke now. The, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. we are used to politicians. We, politicians were always politicians, but we are now completely used to just blatant lies from senior public servants, from politicians told, Transport, you know, trumpeted through the media. We know it's wrong, or we find out it's wrong a couple of days later, nothing happens, and the next lie comes. And that's the way that governance of societies become. And, you know, we, we have governments that are making rules rather than listening to the people. And the, the people of the world are not crying out for their governments to save them from the next pandemic. That's not happening, yeah? They have very different, much more important concerns. So this is not governments responding to people. This is something completely different. It's something where a small group of people who are profiting hugely are shaping government agenda. So it's the opposite of what we thought we had in terms of a government in the West, at least, and in a lot of 
Asian and African countries. And we need to remind the audience too, that when Trump pulled out of the WHO, the largest donor to the WHO was Bill Gates. Yeah. And, and, and people need to pay attention to the connection of the dots of uh, the Gates Foundation um, and the people who've, who've run and served on the board of the Gates Foundation and you know where they sit today. There's somebody that's on the Pfizer board who was formerly with the Gates Foundation. And it's, 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 very, it's very serious. Do you guys think that we're gonna see the transparency of the, the level of corruption that we need to see in 2023? Merle, I mean, well, unless people start watching your program, you know, reading the Epoch Times, looking at children's health defense and so many alternative um, channels, they're not going to see it because all the media have been paid off. All the media rely on government to, to give them, you know, their airwaves uh, to not investigate them, their taxes, et cetera. And and so. Unfortunately, we have established now a way for the media to be totally controlled. And, you know, that has to be taken away. We and don't even know all the mechanisms by which it was accomplished. You know, it's, it was very insidious. Well, um, we do. We actually do. We do know that the U.S. government put $1 billion into media projects, okay, here in the United States and overseas. We do know that the Gates Foundation has given money to foreign uh, press. We do know that the trust initiative that was set up involves Google, Twitter, you know, Alphabet, BBC. And, and I say this for people in the audience who are saying, you know, who is Christine Dolan? I've worked at four U.S. networks. I've been in the business for 40 years. I've done print and broadcasting. I'm the former political director at CNN. So I can say this with authority. I do know that they're being paid off. This is not just the commercials. Uh, Pfizer brings you, you know, Jake Tapper. This is money that it's not just commercials. It is for projects the same way that we know. And we'll just say this now. Sam Bankman Freed had paid money to some news organizations because he wanted to buy the limelight. I'm not saying he gave money to Forbes to be on the front page. But this is this is, David, what you were saying is in terms of these institutions that we thought that had some integrity, in fact, have collapsed before our eyes. And it's become more transparent in terms of of COVID in the landscape that we've all lived in the last, you know, two, three, I guess it's three years now. Which yeah, it's is become incredible. transparent to to some of us who've seen it. But, you know, the, the, the UK is an example. The the largest advertising in the last few years in media in the UK. So the the main source of money is the government, right? And which is taxpayers being used to taxpayers' money being used to propagandize the taxpayers. Right. And yeah, you know, the, then you have pharma, which is you know the next highest or very close to it as a, a huge um, advertiser. So it doesn't take a lot of you know, deep thought to realize, hey, maybe they'd be maybe twisting the news a bit to what their funders want, because if they don't, a lot of these media organizations will go out of business. Um, I don't think Bill Gates funders. would give a, I don't think Bill Gates would give a dime with somebody if he didn't get what something what he wanted. It's just impossible for me to even yeah. conceive that. Yeah. And, and you can even understand that from a, a purely human point of view. You know, you give something, you want something back. What matters mm -hmm. is that the people reading it need to understand this. They need, right. you know, I used to, you know, when Trump was elected, I um, so started subscribing to the New York Times because I, I was really worried about what I could see as an attack on the media. I wanted to um, have, to support integrity in journalism, but at the start of COVID, it became so blatantly obvious that the New York Times was not a serious news organization that I cancelled the subscription. Um, because, I mean, you could, you could see from what they were putting out that they weren't attempting to give context, they weren't attempting to inform. They were following someone's instructions in terms of the data that they were producing and the way they produced it. So. And we will we, we we are going to talk about that with some journalists going into 2023. I can tell mm -hmm. our audience that that friends of mine are going to come back and we are going to talk about that. But we've got to go, guys. Merle, we've got one minute before we're going off the air. Do you want to add anything before we go? The federal government admits to having spent five trillion dollars in its pandemic response uh, by October of last year. Mm -hmm. So I think they spent way more than a billion dollars on the media. 
um, and they're still spending it. This is our money. So our, our money is being used basically to put a noose around our necks. And um, that's what people need to understand. You know, the, the way the, these bills have allowed the federal government to take over education, to take over all sorts of other institutions, but particularly the media and health, and to spend enormous amounts of money to bribe all the institutions and essentially force them to take the money or go under. Um, you know, this is this is what happened in the United States go. and probably around the world. So yeah. um, it's it is it's a lot to unpack, and we will continue to do it going into 2023. God bless you both. Thank you for coming in. You know, during the holidays, happy holidays to everybody, and we will see you in the new year. Thanks, Christine.